Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there, no, is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have portrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Good morning, Covenant Church. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I was, uh, I was here uh, at the previous location some years ago. I was trying to remember how far back it was. It was quite a while back. But hey, congratulations on just what you're doing these days. The video was amazing. Uh, before, I had a few extra minutes and I drove by the construction site this morning. So impressive, just so wonderful. So God is evidently blessing you. There's so many people here this morning in the school, and um, my uh, relationship with your church goes back a ways. I was a pastor in Ocala, Florida, back when Dan Henley uh, was around, and so I knew Dan. He and I were friends, and I've followed the progress of the church since then, too. I think the world of your leaders, um, I really, really do. Um, such a faithful longevity they are practicing. Um, so good, so good. So anyway, one correction on the bio that was given, I now have 12 grandchildren. <laughs> so uh, as of about a month ago, our youngest son, Michael, and his wife had their first baby. So we've got an even dozen. We're hoping for a baker's dozen now. <laughs> so we'll see if that happens. Psalm 73, keep that Bible opened if you will. We're going to look at various verses in this passage, but let me pray for us and with us before we dive in, okay? 
Heavenly Father, as Sandy prayed to, we just are so privileged to be the recipients of your grace, uh, of your word, the Bible. Thank you for the fact that we can open our Bible so freely in our country and read and study together and talk about spiritual things. We thank you. Help us, oh God, to use and steward this time well. And I pray now, Spirit of God, that you will come and be our teacher and direct our hearts and our minds toward Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. One thing I love about the Bible is how honest it is. This psalm that you've heard read is a very honest psalm. And so is so much of the Bible. It contains stories of real people who struggled with real problems, things that you and I can identify with. If you struggle, for example, with depression, you know that Jeremiah the prophet did too. If you struggle sometimes with feeling inadequate and inferior, guess what? So did Timothy. If you struggle with lust, so did Samson. If you struggle with loneliness, David did too. If your struggle is with pride, the king Hezekiah did have a struggle with pride as well. If you struggle with fear, so did Jonah, the prophet. If you struggle with doubt, so did Job. And if you've ever struggled with envy, and who hasn't, so did Asaph, the author of Psalm 73. Did you notice if you had your Bible open when you were listening to it, it says a Psalm of Asaph. So who in the world was this guy, Asaph? Well, he was a priest back in the days of David and Solomon, the kings of Israel. He also was Israel's music director. He wrote and led songs. He led the people of God in worship. He organized choirs and musicians. You might say he was the Pax and Gene Cake of the ancient world. Uh, He was a singer-songwriter, is what we would call Asaph if he were around today. And he wrote a dozen of the psalms that are in our Bibles. Asaph was a deeply spiritual man. But he also struggled with envy. We're going to talk about envy this morning. What is envy? Well, envy is that feeling you have when you resent the advantages and the privileges and the possessions of another person. To envy somebody means that you're dissatisfied with the gifts that you have, that God has given you, or the place in life that God has placed you in, and you resent another person for the gifts, possessions, place they have. When I was growing up, I was the younger brother to my brother Larry, And Larry was a very athletic guy. He was a great football player. He went on to play high school and a little bit of college. I, on the other hand, well, you see. (laughs) I was thinner. I was slenderer than Larry, not bulky and muscular like him. And I also tended toward the, the, the more artistic side of things. But I so envied my brother for the fact that he was so strong and muscular and well built and everything. I, I, I really undervalued the gifts that God had given me 
despite my mom's encouragement to take piano lessons, and I elevated the gifts that my brother had. I thought highly of what he had, and I wanted what he had instead of prizing what I had. Well, in Psalm 73, Asaph tells us about his envy and what he did to turn it around. So this morning, I want to show you a plan that we'll use to get into this psalm. I've divided it up into four parts, and they all start with the letter C to help you remember what we're learning this morning. We're going to look first at Asaph's creed, then turn to his crisis, and then look at his course correction that he made, and finally we'll look at his renewed confidence. So his creed, crisis, course correction, and renewed confidence. So with that plan in mind, let's dive in and look first in Psalm 73 at Asaph's creed. His creed is summarized in verse 1. Now you know what a creed is, right? Sometimes we in church, we recite a creed or a confession of faith. We might use the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's just a summary of what one believes. Asaph's creed is in verse 1, where he says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You see, Asaph is orthodox. Asaph has good theology. We might say Asaph was reformed. He had a robust faith. He knew what he was supposed to believe. After all, he was a leader. Like I said earlier, he was a leader of God's people. He's a student of the Word of God. That's why the first word out of his mouth in Psalm 73 is the word truly. Truly, indeed, certainly. Surely God is good to Israel. That's Asaph's creed. But, you know, it's one thing to know what one ought to believe and quite another to actually live out of one's belief when confronted with the realities of life in a broken world. Because no sooner are the words of verse 1 out of Asaph's mouth than he has a crisis of faith. And he shares that crisis with us in verses 2 through 14. So we're going to look at part of Asaph's crisis. Look at verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In other words, Asaph confesses that he nearly tripped and fell. He lost his balance. And we might want to say to Asaph, well, Asaph, what happened? Why, when you were so strong and certain about what you believed, why did you almost lose it? What happened? And he tells us about his crisis in verse 3. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now see, you and I can identify with Asaph, can't we? Maybe you come out your front door one morning and you see your next door neighbor gathered around his brand new Tesla. And there are lots of people from the neighborhood just coming around and admiring this brand new wonderful car. And you say, oh, wow, look at that. How great. (laughs) But what you're thinking is, why do they have that car? How did they get that car? I want that car. 
envy. Or maybe you're sweating it out on the Stairmaster one day in the gym and this thin little 20-something happens to go walking by. Or maybe you hear about some friends of yours who just got back from their third vacation this year. Or maybe somebody tells you about a great spiritual experience they had. And suddenly you can relate to Asaph. Envy says, I should have that car. I should have that body. I want that experience. I need that vacation. I deserve that promotion, that raise, that husband, that wife. Why do they have such great kids? I should have great kids. My kid ought to be playing first base. Why is he out in left field? Why does she have such an understanding mom that lets her do whatever she wants? I should have a mom like that. You fill in the blank. We've all been there. I know what I'm talking about because I've experienced envy as a pastor. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of envy in the church world, too. Throughout my 34, 35 years as a pastor, there were many times I shudder to think how often I would hear about something that another pastor is doing or another church is growing or another man is writing a new book or the, bit, the budget of his church is bigger than mine or they've got more people in the youth group or whatever. And in my heart, envy would rise up. And I would say, I want that church. I don't like my church. Isn't that cruel, friends? Isn't that unbelieving and hard? Yeah, temptations to be envious are everywhere you look. Envy sells products. Envy creates crime and enemies. Did you know that Mark 15 verse 10 says that it was out of envy that the chief priests handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate? Euripides called envy the greatest of all diseases among men. Paul in Galatians 5 includes envy in his list of the deeds of the flesh. And I want you to remember a verse in the Proverbs. Proverbs 14, verse 30. You might want to jot that down and memorize it this week. Proverbs 14, 30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. Makes you think of cancer, right? Cancer rots the bones. Well, spiritually speaking, the Bible says that envy rots the bones, and it just about killed Asaph's faith. Verse 2, he says that he nearly slipped off the cliff into the abyss of doubt and unbelief. See, like we saw earlier, Asaph believes that God is good, good to Israel. But Asaph looks around and he says to himself and he says to God, something's not adding up here. The righteous seem to be suffering while wicked and arrogant people seem to be prospering. That's not the way things are supposed to work, Lord. You know, the Hebrew word for prosperity in verse 3 is the Hebrew word shalom. Now, many of you know what shalom means. It means peace or well-being or blessedness or wholeness. Something's wrong with this picture, says Asaph. 
People who don't even believe in God aren't supposed to be experiencing shalom. What's happening here? Well, he goes through and tells us many things he observes about the unbelievers around him. First of all, he says unbelievers seem to be very happy. They have no pangs, verse 4. That is, no struggles. Now, that's not true. We know that. But it appears to him that they have it all together. They're very happy. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind, verse 5. The NIV renders that they are free from the burdens common to men. Do you ever feel that way about folks around you? They don't struggle. Why do I struggle with all these things? People around me seem to be doing great. They're very happy. Secondly, they seem healthy. Their bodies, he says in verse 4, are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They seem also popular. Happy, healthy, popular. Verse 10, people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. They've got a lot of followers. They've got a lot of fans. Fourthly, they seem invincible and in control. He says in verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their, their tongue struts through the earth. They just seem to have everything planned and things are just working out royally. And finally, they seem successful, happy, healthy, popular, in control, successful. He says in verse 12, always at ease, they increase in riches. So I want you to think about right now, think about someone of whom you're envious right now. I suspect, let's be honest, most of us have experienced this. Think of somebody that you have envied, maybe in the past, maybe right now. Someone who appears to be happy, healthy, popular, in control, successful. And you look at your life and you say, wow, they've got it a lot better than I do. If it's not an individual, maybe you're envious of a whole group of people. People who are married. People who have kids. People who don't have kids. <laughs> people who are single. Maybe you're envious of a group of people like that. You're dissatisfied, you see, with who you are, where God has placed you, whom God has made you to be, and you even resent that other person, that other group, for who they are and what they have and where they are. Listen, very important, that envy is killing your joy. It is killing your joy. It is rotting your bones. You don't know it. A lot of people with cancer are walking around not aware that they have cancer. And whether you realize it or not, your envy is rotting your bones spiritually. It's robbing your heart of peace, the peace, the shalom God wants for you. And it's killing uh, your ability to love that other person or honor that other group. Asaph's having a crisis. These people that he's talking about, they couldn't care less about God. They are not people of faith. He says pride is their necklace in verse 6. Their hearts overflow with follies, he says in verse 7. They don't love God. They don't even give God the time of day. Did you notice that in verse 11? It says that they carry on with their lives and they say, how can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? It's not fair, God, Asaph says. You're supposed to be good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Well, Lord, I'm Israel. And I've done all the right things. I've said the right things. I believe the right things. I've tried to honor you and obey your law. And what have I gained for it, he says. In verse 13, nothing. See, you, know, you see why I said the Bible's so honest? He's not hiding from God. He's complaining to God. It's all in vain, he says in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now look, before we pile on Asaph and accuse him of feeling sorry for himself, which maybe some of you might be tempted to do, we need to realize that he is asking a very reasonable question. And that question is, is God just? Is he fair? Is he true to his promises? And can I trust him? It's a question many of us have asked at some time in our lives. Can I really trust God? Job asked those questions. So did the author of Ecclesiastes. So did the prophet Habakkuk. So have I. And so have many of you. Is God, how can I, how can you, how can we follow God and trust God when life seems unfair? When prayers go unanswered, when your loved one does not get better, when it feels like God is a million miles away. Maybe somebody here this morning is there now. Well, I want to direct your attention to the course correction that this psalm reveals. And I hope and pray that it will be a course correction for you too if you're struggling with these questions of the justice of God. In verses 16 and 17, Asaph lets us in on the progress of his faith. He says in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I've been going crazy. This is, this is jumping around in my head, and I don't know what to do with it, he says. It seemed impossible to figure out until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Speaking of those people that he envied. I went into the sanctuary of God. Ah, there's the breakthrough. There's the turning point in Asaph's life. He gets a new perspective on life in a fallen world. Or maybe we should say that he has always had that perspective, but now he recovers it. In other words, it's sort of like putting on glasses if you're someone who needs eyeglasses. If I were to take my glasses off, everything on this podium is a blur. (laughs) I don't see it as it should be. But as soon as I put on my glasses, then I see things correctly. And this is what Asaph experienced too. He put on the eyeglasses of faith and he gained a new perspective on life that's often very hard and mysterious. How did it happen? How did Asaph get this course correction? Well, he says so. He went into the sanctuary of God. That is to say, he went to the temple. He went to church. He met with God's people and did what God's people do when they meet together. 
They sing hymns. They listen to God's word. They pray. They encourage each other. It was in the temple when Asaph gathered with the family of God that he put on his glasses. He regained his balance and he saw things as they really are. And his envy turned into faith. You know, the older I get, the more I value what we're doing in this room right now. I remember early in my Christian experience, and I actually became a believer at Furman. Early in my Christian life, it was such a radically new experience. It was just me and Jesus, you know. It was a very personal uh, change. And so I valued personal Bible study, personal morning devotions, small group Bible studies, and things like that. And I do not at all mean to uh, devalue those things. It was very, very critical to our spiritual formation. But something special happens in church on Sunday morning that only happens in church on Sunday morning. Amen. That's one of the bad things about COVID. People got used to not going to church. And I don't know about you, but I know a, quite a few people who are still not going to church. And it hurts them and their spiritual growth. I'll be honest, there have been times when I've dragged myself to church on Sunday morning. And I was the pastor. (laughs) But what happened is, as I sang the songs, as I talked with friends, as I heard God's word, as I took the Lord's Supper bowed my head in prayer with my family and friends, something changed in my heart. I got a course correction. I got an eternal perspective. I recovered my senses, and I put on my glasses of faith. I went into the sanctuary of God, says Asaph. Then I understood. Then I got it. I now know what happens to those people in the end. Well, we've seen his creed, his crisis, his course correction. And finally, Asaph tells us about his renewed confidence. Basically, in these closing verses, verses 18 through 28, I hear Asaph preaching the gospel to himself. He brings to mind three things that he knows to be true. Three things, three truths that lead him out of envy and into confidence and contentment in God. So I want to tell you this morning, if you intend, if you desire to not be dominated by such things as envy and to be able to live with confidence and contentment in who you are and where you are, memorize these three truths. You might even want to write them down. Let's go. Truth number one that Asaph preaches to himself. Here it is. Although unbelievers may prosper in this life, they will be punished in the life to come. Say it again. Although unbelievers may indeed prosper in this life, they will be punished in the life to come. He says that in verse 18 where he says, Truly, Lord, you set them, speaking of these people, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. 
how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. See, Covenant Church, one day it will not matter that a person was rich or beautiful or famous or successful or that they lived in a fancy home and drove a Tesla or sailed in yachts or had all that this world has to offer. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. But sadly, for those who put their hope and their trust in those things, on the last day, they will discover that they neglected the one thing that matters more than anything else. And that is having a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never said yes to Jesus, if, if anyone here has never really turned from your old way of life and your sin and said, God, I need you to forgive me. I want a relationship with you. If you've never done that, I must tell you that you are walking on a slippery place. And as we sang earlier this morning, Jesus is coming again. We, knew, we don't, don't know when, but there's nothing more urgent than for you and me to be sure that we have been forgiven of God and in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So I invite you this morning, turn, trust in Christ. You will find him to be a welcoming God. A God who, though this world does not often make sense, a God who loves you and accepts you fully and wants to be with you forever. I don't know anything that can beat that. So truth number one, unbelievers, yes, they may prosper in this life. They'll be punished later. Here's truth number two. Believers, although they may suffer in this life, they will be celebrated in the life to come. Believers in Jesus, though they suffer in this life, they will be celebrated in the life to come. He says this in verse 23. Nevertheless, says Asaph, I am continually with you, speaking to God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Celebrated in this life that we await one day. Think of that, believers. Afterward, he will receive us into glory. You who suffer with cancer, with depression, with a story of abuse, or some other chronic difficulty that you wake up to every morning, glory is going to be yours one day. You who suffer, who have denied yourselves, carried your cross, given your money, served without reward, glory will be yours. You who have wept over your sin and fought your temptations and stayed faithful in light of your failings, glory will be yours. You who have felt unwanted, unseen, who have been lonely and rejected and abandoned, yet you still love the Lord Jesus, He will receive you into glory. And it's not because of anything you've done to deserve it. It's not because of all the things you've done for God. It is simply and merely because of what He did for you on the cross through His Son, the Lord Jesus. 
He died on the cross and He rose again for you. He took your sins away and gave you His righteous standing so that God, your Father, is singing with delight over you even as we sit here this morning. Unbelievers, you will, you may prosper in this life. You will be punished later. Believers, you may suffer in this life. You will be celebrated in the life to come. And then truth number three. In the meantime, on this side of glory, believers in Jesus, you have the most wonderful thing in the world, a relationship with God. That's why you need never envy any other person. In fact, they should envy you for this relationship you have with God. Asaph says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's think about that word portion. That word portion means share or inheritance or allotment. And being a Levite, Asaph would have loved that word. He would have known exactly what that word means. You see, the Levites owned no real estate in the Holy Land. All the other tribes of Israel, they received territory, right? They received land in the Holy Land. They received real estate. Judah, Simeon, Benjamin, Issachar, Zebulun, Reuben, all these other tribes, but not the Levites. They didn't receive any allotment or territory. Why? Because God was their portion. God was their allotment. He was their inheritance. And so is God your portion, believers in Jesus. It means that He is enough. He's your treasure. He's the treasure worth far more than anything you might compile this side of heaven. You know, Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes from the colonial period, he preached a sermon one time on Psalm 73. And in that sermon, he said something that I want to leave with you this morning. He said, he that has God has all. He that has God, she that has God has all. God's your portion. God is your portion when your marriage is an unhappy one. He is enough. God's your portion when you're single. He is your portion when you don't have a job or when you don't like your job. God is enough. God is enough. He is your allotment. He is your inheritance when you have a child who decides to walk the path of unbelief. God is enough. He is your portion when you're sick, when you're disabled, and when you won't be getting better. Do you believe that? Do you believe God's your portion? He's enough despite the troubles of this world. He is. He is. He is enough. See, Asaph learned something we need to learn. And that is that this blessed life, this life of shalom, is not achieved by what you have, what you do, what you know. It's measured and achieved by who you know. Or better yet, by who knows you. Earlier, I asked you to think of somebody you envy. 
Do you want to kill that envy? Do you want to live above that envy so that it doesn't rot your bones? Sure you do. You and I, we don't want to be dominated by this sin. So let's say with Asaph, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the honest words of Asaph. We identify with this honest man. We too struggle with envy sometimes. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Covenant. I pray for myself that we will not be controlled by this evil of envy. That when it tempts us, we might be able to say to it, Oh, God's enough. I don't need that. I don't need this. God is my inheritance. He is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross, that we might know this and that we might have what is truly the peace of God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.